there's something that I noticed, and I'm not exactly sure what to do with it. I noticed it in the wake of the Chaim Walder response, the response to Chaim Walder. Um, I think that uh, I'm going to talk a little bit in this episode about some of the responses. Now, Chaim Walder himself, there's nothing, there's nothing to say about. There's, there's really nothing that I can say. There's nothing that I want to say about the man. Um, Shame or Shame Yerkov. Done. I want to talk about some of the responses. So there was one response that I think it was said in the name of Rav Edelstein. And I want to address that a little bit because it's this is this is what I noticed. This is the gap that I noticed. He started by talking about that, you know, like what's the worst thing that he may have done? This brings us to the Parsha. The most the, the, the most egregious thing that he may have done is been over on Losinov, right? That he was with a married woman who wasn't his wife. And what we're doing now, that's Malbim Pnei Chavero, and we know that Malbim Pnei Chavero, that the journalists were Malbim Pnei Chavero, and the Malbim Pnei Chavero, we know, is like killing someone, and therefore what they're doing is worse than what he's doing. So first of all, the equation, and I'm not the only, like, had I not heard from at least two significant gedolim, and I'm talking about Significant gedolim from from different from different uh, ends of the spectrum. Not to mention all of the dynamic on the on the uh, on the bezdin itself. Um, had I not, you know, I, I probably wouldn't say anything about Revedelstein, but having heard explicitly from several gedolim um, that you know that said. Uh, that, that took Ravettel State to task for this, um, you know, I feel comfortable saying what I'm about to say. So, two things. One is the equation of Malvin Pene Javero with, uh, with, with killing someone. So, yes, that the Gemara does make that comparison, but I think that, you know, if you say that, like, if somebody, like, take the example of Yahar Valyavor, right? So if somebody points a gun at you and says, I'm going to kill you, and else you kill that person, you have to give up your life. Somebody points your gun, points the gun at you and says, I'm going to kill you unless you, you know, publicly shame that person. I don't think that you have to give up your life. Right? And I think that everybody agrees that you don't have to give up your life. Um... Except for there's like one, there's one, I can't remember who it is. So I, you know, I think I might remember who it is, but I can't remember who it is that you, you know, so I'm not going to say who I think it is, because if I'm wrong, I don't want to, you know, nobody, nobody really says you have to give up your life rather than publicly shame someone. Um, so Malvin Pnei as much as it's, 
as much as it's compared to to killing, it's not your Val Yavor. So it's not really killing. You don't get the death penalty for it. You don't, you know, so yeah, so the Chazal made the comparison. So you have to understand what Chazal meant by that comparison. Do they mean that it really is like killing? Um, it is like killing. Like can mean a lot of different things, right? It's the, that, the old Kaf Hadimayon, right? Uh, there was, what's the story? That um, they say in the name of the Grizz, right, Rebelville, that if Reb Chaim would have said that a cow is like a table, I would have looked at the cow, looked at a table, and said, oh, they both have four legs. Baruch Bear would, would sit there trying to milk the table. It's like, okay, so that's the question of a of the kafadimayon, right? It's ki, right? It's like. In what sense is it like? It doesn't mean that it is. It's like. What is the basis for that comparison? Fine. That's the Malbum Pnechaver. But that's not really what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the I want to talk about the other side of the equation, right? The the one about um, the one about sexuality. So there, first of all, the Torah makes a comparison between sexual crime and murder. Right? In the case of um, Indivarim, when it talks about Kasher Yakum Ishal Ehu Lahargo Kain Hadavar Hazeh, the Torah says that if uh, if it was you know, if an act of, if, if a sex act takes place in a field, uh, we can presume that the woman was not a willing participant, that she was a, she was completely a victim. Um, you know, and even if she would have screamed, nobody would have heard her. And then the Torah says that it's exactly, it's exactly like a murder victim. Tasha Yakum ish al-re'ehu lahargo kein hadvar hazeh. Like when a man murders another, it's a, the, so is this case. So this thing about, you know, like, okay, that this is compared to murder, that's not compared to murder. Well, no, that's also compared to murder. But the Torah is talking about a very, very specific case there. The Torah is talking about the case of a Nara Meurasa, right? A woman who is, she's a young girl who is betrothed but not married. So she has the status of an Asia Ish. So in such a case, only the man is, right? That if she's, that basically the way that, the Chaz, that Chazal understand it is, okay, so obviously if there's a, if there's an act of Bia, if there is an act of if there's a set, um, if right, if there is an act of bia between a married woman and a man, then there are two there are two people involved in this. So the man we say is always going to be guilty, will always be considered to be in violation of the iser of Asia's ish or nara Urasa or whatever the case may be. For the woman, it depends if it can be established that she is a willing participant, then she is liable for the same punishment that he is liable for. If it's established that she is not a willing participant, that she was coerced, 
then she is, that's when the Torah makes this comparison to a murder victim. She's a murder victim. She's essentially a murder victim. Um, and we treat her as a murder victim, meaning we treat her as a wholly innocent um, uh, party to this crime. Now, it's interesting that in one of the really, in, in one of the most widely shared responses to Walder, you had Ruf Meiselman spoke, and I thought that Ruf Meiselman's speech was fantastic. And one of the things that he said was that he and his son were meeting with a Menahel or some sort of administrator of a school in the United States, and the administrator asked, like, what's so bad? Meaning, like, halakhically, does the Torah think that, you know, these crimes are so bad? And his son answered, Kasher yakum hadavar hazeh. So, what he was doing, now, it's true, and it, that's the final word. And I think that rhetorically you will say that that is the final word. That is how we treat all of these cases. But the Torah... To be honest, if we're being honest, the Torah is talking about a specific case of Nara Me'urasa. It's not talking about any case of victimhood, meaning the Torah also has cases, the cases of Onesu Mafate. Uh, the Torah has cases where a man uh, seduces, um, you know, what we would call statutory rape, right? Seduces an, an unmarried girl. Or, even more egregiously, the Torah says, right, egregiously from, from our perspective, the Torah, according to the Torah, if a man rapes an unmarried girl, then the penalty is he has to pay her father a fine and he has to marry the girl. Right? Which and that's something that we would find to be outrageous. Right? And you're talking about like an unmarried a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old. A man rapes a 13-year-old. What's the what's the penalty? He has to pay her father, I don't know, a hundred bucks and probably a little bit more, but he has to pay the equivalent, like the monetary, the monetary, um, the monetary value of her ketubah before and after the incident, and he has to marry her, right? Um, which is, you know, to us, what? Like, what? Why would she want to marry? Like, why? You know, obviously she can opt out, but why? Why is that the penalty in the first? Well, who would want a guy like this anywhere near their kid? Okay. Um, so that gets us to what I really want to talk about, which is there's a major gap in the Torah between the rhetoric and the penalty of sex crimes. What do I mean by that? It means that, and it starts in the Torah itself, this gap, and it continues through the Nevi'im very strongly, and into Chazal, and Ad Hayom Hazeh, meaning already in the Torah you see a gap. What's the gap that I'm talking about? So. The Torah has
according to the Torah, the Torah has very, very harsh words to say about a man who marries a woman from the Shiva Amamin, of one of the seven nations, who marries a woman from one of the seven nations that inhabited Eretz Yisrael before the arrival of the Jewish people. Right? And the Torah says that if you do that, your children, it's like you're, you're handing your children over to an Avodah Zarah, your children will not be yours. What's the actual punishment for that? And again, it reserves, it reserves words for that that you don't find um, with most other lavin, with most other transgressions in the Torah. What's the actual punishment? Possibly malchus. Like there's no, you know, it's it's not a capital it's not a capital crime. Possibly you have a case of the case of Pinchas, right, where everybody's kind of standing around and like seeing that this is going on and nobody wants to take, you know, nobody nobody can do anything about it. Meaning, yeah, what he's doing is horrible and terrible and it's going to erode the you know, collective boundaries of the Jewish people, and there's we see where this could lead, but like, what's the actual iser that he's doing? And you know, the the Torah, I'm sorry, the Gemara actually dramatizes this as like Moshe Rabbeinu is sitting there and he doesn't know what to do and he doesn't know what he can do. And Pinchas comes over to him and says, like, what's the what's the halacha with 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 these guys? Like, it can't be that this is, you know, that we could be allowing this to go on. And then you have this weird, weird. Sock, what I mean by weird is just that it's a complete outlier. There's nothing like it. And that's kind of a pokembo, right? It's like this Torah warranted act of um, vigilantism, right? That a, that a kanoi, right? And somebody who's dafka, somebody who's a kanoi, that the reaction has to be, um, it's almost like the, the, the Torah says that if you want to respond to this, if you want to punish this guy, it has to be visceral. There has to be just this well, you know, that this, this, this kanoos wells up in you and you just go and as an act of, you know, of outside the law, um, you kill the guy. Uh, there's, you have other cases, similar cases. It's an interesting thing. I just noticed that all of the cases that talk about this are in, are in Bamidbar. That's something to think about. You also have the status of the goel hadam, meaning that if somebody kills somebody by accident, the Torah it doesn't explicitly sanction and say to the next of kin, "Yeah, you have the right to avenge the death of your relative," but it does say to the it does say to the to the accidental killer, "You better hightail it to a city of refuge," and it establishes these cities of refuge where the person can claim sanctuary. Right, so there's this acknowledgement there. Um, and also the case of Soto, which is another one of these anomalous cases where somebody is sort of, um, you know, he, he, in a fit of jealousy, um, has, you know, has these, has these, you know, suspects his wife of, of being unfaithful to him. And in all three cases, the Torah in two cases explicitly, the Torah provides some sort of outlet. Right? One is through the ritual of Sota and the ordeal of Sota. One is through the establishment of cities of refuge, basically saying, like, listen, 
there's no real way that we can that we can like we can say that it's us or to kill an accidental killer. We can say that unless there's ironclad proof, of, uh, a husband can't be um, a husband has nothing on his wife who he sus suspects is unfaithful. But um, because there are human emotions, and because if somebody accidentally kills someone, then that then his relatives are going to want to avenge. Or if a woman is seen, you know, doing unseemly things, right, like uh, you know, flirting or or hanging out with a guy who's not her husband, the husband will get jealous. We need to find a way to we need to find a way to um, account for this. We need to find a way to channel those sorts of emotions without letting things get out of control. And the case of Kanaim Pogenbo is sort of similar because the Torah never really says that what Pinchas did was okay. It justifies it after the fact. Right? Tachas Asher It justifies it after the fact, but it, there's no, and there can't be any sort of black letter ruling that says um, that says that this is that this is sanctioned. Even the Mishnah, which says, in the, the Mishnah in Sanhedrin, which says Haboel Aram is Kanoim Pogimbo. It doesn't. It says it as a matter of fact, right? It's not clear in what voice the Mishnah is talking about. Meaning, is that a psak? Is the Torah saying Haboel Aram is Kanoim Pogimbo? Haboel Aram is the punishment for Haboel Aram is that Kanoim Pogimbo. Or is it just saying this as a matter of fact? Habol Aramis Kanaim Pogimpo. This is what's going to happen. Habol Aramis Kanaim are going to are going to go after you. Um, you will be subject to the uh, vigilante justice of the zealots. Um, and and it could be that there's some sort of that there's a certain intentional ambiguity there on the part of the Mishnah. It, this is if there's a uh, a book that I would that I would suggest that talks about these different sorts of what he calls levels of narrativity in the Mishnah is Moshe Simon Shoshan's book, Narrating the Law, where he talks about different modes, different ways that the Mishnah formulates, formulates laws and formulates things in not a, um, as, as statement, not law. Right, so the question of whether the statement Habol Aramis Kanaim Pogimbo is an apodictic statement or a casuistic statement um, or a statement of or a description of reality, right? Those are, you know, that that's the sort of thing that he talks about there, and we're you know Inkan Makom Lahari. But uh, but you see that there's a gap um, when it comes to when it comes to the Nevi'im. Right? You see it, it's even more pronounced when you talk about people who are not Jewish, but who aren't from the, Zev, from the Zion Amamin, who aren't from those seven nations. Right? So you see it in the, in the Nevi'im Achronim, and you see it especially in Sefer Ezra, where there are Takanas, and there are also very, you know, all of a sudden intermarriage becomes a very, um, a very serious problem, even though it's very hard to know exactly what the Isser is, whether there's an Isser at all. Right? Maybe there's an Isser lav there. Maybe there's an Isser if there's actually a, a sense of wedlock and not just as a, a casual encounter. Maybe, but you've you got to look for it because there's nothing explicit in the Torah that says anything about it. It talks about the Shiva Amamin. It talks about a few other Amamin. 
right? Like Ammon and Moab, but it doesn't talk about it doesn't talk about anyone else. Right? There are a lot of Ammon that aren't mentioned in the Torah. Okay. Um, and yet, starting in Sefer Ezra and continuing Lamaisa, continuing until this day, if you talk about, you know, what are the greatest what are the greatest challenges facing Klal Yisrael? Everybody will say, everybody has often said, intermarriage. Right? Intermarriage, meaning, you know, Jews marrying non-Jews, that, that leads, number one, it leads to assimilation, and number two, if the mother is not Jewish, then the children aren't Jewish. Um, and so that's a, and, and that's, the, that's the gap, that's the gap that we're talking about, in terms of if you talk about like on communal policy and and where we talk about our you know where we have where we place our attention and and the fact that like you know you hear stories about how if a fa you know if if if, if a son went and married a non-Jewish guy not, uh, if a son went and married a non-Jewish woman um, the family would sit shiva you don't really hear that about other about other things, right? If the, you know, if 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 the son was in a was a philanderer, was an adulterer, or didn't marry, just you know, you don't hear stories. The son was gay. The son was, you don't hear stories about you know family sitting shiva for that. Um, you hear stories where dafka, you know, you convert to another religion, or you, or you, um, or you marry a non-Jew. That's that's what you know where the family causes you know that's what will cause the family to sit shiva, even though, again, you look for the crime, you look for what the Torah actually says about this. The punishment for such a crime is, is minimal. And I think you have a similar thing. When it comes to. Meaning, so up until now we've been talking about intermarriage, but you you have a similar thing when it comes to other types of sexual encounter. You know, and here we look at the Gemara at the end of Parak Ben Sora Rumore. So we know that there are you know that's the, the parak that talks about the big three, right? Avodazara Agile Arias and Shvichas Damim, the three cardinal sins for which one has to give up their life rather than rather than uh, rather than commit. And that's where Gili Arayos, right, uh, um, forbidden sexual intercourse is considered, is considered, um, is considered something that you have to give up your life for. And then at the end of the parak, you have this strange story about a guy who is becomes infatuated with this young girl. So they say, oh, should we let him marry her? No. Should we let him, you know, just touch her? No. Should we let them? Basically, you know, like it says, whisper behind the fence that they should speak together behind the fence. And the Gemara said, "No, let him die. The guy should die." And the loyu benos Yisrael prutos parayos, right? And you can't set, you can't establish a precedent for benos Yisrael for Jewish girls being prutos parayos, being licentious, right? You know, and it's a very, uh, it's a, it's a strange. It's not, it's, it's not that it's strange, right? It's that it goes so much further than anything else and that, it, you know, it's speaking ostensibly about an actual case that was, 
right? And it's saying that this was the communal reaction. There's the communal reaction to this case where this guy was completely infatuated with this with this young woman, was just completely, um, you know, we don't care about the guy. Let him die. We don't care about what his desires are. We cannot turn her into some sort of, um, you know, object of, of, of his desire. We can't let him, you know, fulfill his desires through her. It's not going to happen. Let him die. And you have some similar cases, a similar, I would say, a similar visceral, rea visceral reaction is in the 16th parak of Yavamos. There's a machlokas about, between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, about mi'un. Now, according to the Torah, a father can marry off a daughter until she reaches adulthood, i.e. until she reaches the age of 12. So according to the Torah, a father can accept Kesef Kiddushin for his young daughter, who's even seven, eight years old, and she is thus married off to a man before she reaches the age of adulthood. If, she, if her husband dies, or if she, um, if she gets divorced, then she is considered an adult already, even if her father is still alive. She does not go back to being in control of her father. Now, if the father died, if the father died before the woman was ever, before the young girl was ever married, um, then there's a special halacha called mi'un, right? which means that the mother and, or the brother of this girl can accept Kesef Kiddushin on her behalf, but um, she can, at any point, she can say, she can refuse him. She can refuse the husband. She can say, I do not want to be married to you any longer. And until she reaches adulthood, i.e. the age of 12, she goes, you know, she can leave, she can leave him without a get, right? So it's one of these very strange situations where um, they're considered married they're considered rabbinically married, and with all that that entails, um, and they, and and she can go free without even, without a get. Now, there's a cardinal machlokas here between Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai. Um, Beis Shammai says that this only works for erusin. This works for betrothal. It doesn't work for nisuin. I.e., this man can betroth this young girl. You know, a, a, a mother and a, and, a, and a brother can accept um, the transactions, can act on behalf of the younger sister slash daughter um, to betroth her to, to a man, but it can't go past the betrothal, meaning they cannot live together as husband and wife, i.e. they cannot engage in any sexual, um, they, they can't have sex. Um, that's what Beis Shammai says. And Beis Shammai says, you can only do it once. Meaning, if she refuses him, then that's it. You can't marry her off to another guy. Beis Hillel says, no, no. It works. Right? You could do... You know, the, the, once she's married off to this man, it works for Nisuin as well, meaning they can have sex. I mean, the girl's under 12, so he can have sex with her. I mean, she's not really... Um, 
she has not achieved the age of consent even halachically. Um, and Beit Hillel also says that after she does mi'un the first time, um, the mother and brother can marry her off to the next guy, four or five times or more. Um, essentially, Beit Hillel says that you have some sort of legalized child prostitution here. You know, train the girl to say, Mema'enet, and, you know, you could just marry her off to guy after guy after guy, and they can have their way with her. And Beis Shammai's response, Beis Shammai's response is, Ein Benos Yisrael Hefker. Like, Beis Shammai, they don't, they don't even offer any sort of halachic, um, halachic argument. Their argument is simply, you have legalized child prostitution. Like, you ain't been Yisrael Hefker. Like, how can, like, they're just nauseated. And by the way, um, even though generally we say, you know, the halachic of Hillel and Beis Hillel, especially like, you know, everybody's talking about Gerus now and everybody's like, oh, we're Beis Hillel, we're Beis Hillel. Like, yeah, listen, Beis Hillel, I'm with Shammai on this one. I'm with Shammai on this one. Um, and I think that we would all be with Shammai on this one. Meaning, I don't think it's a chiddush that even if, even if technically speaking, the halacha, even in this case, follows Beis Hillel, um, you know, I think we've come a long way since then. I think that, first of all, even the case of a father that marries off his, his less than 12-year-old daughter um, and, gives her kesef, and, get, and accepts Kesef Kedushin on her behalf would be considered... A deviant, and we would say that the guy should be locked up, and that this is a form of child abuse, um, even though, even if what he's doing is, according to halacha, completely mutter. And I think that what we say about Hillel, right, is that what we would say about Hillel in the case of Miyun is that, yeah, even though Hillel, even if you could find a halachic way to make it okay to essentially prostitute your underage daughter. Like no, don't we don't do that? That's horrific. That's terrible. What's your halachic reasoning? What do I need halachic reasoning for? It's a visceral reaction. This is terrible. In Benos Yisrael Hefker. So I think that you have a lot of that. So I, I think that when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to when it comes to sex, there are. We recognize that there's a gap. Now, why there's a gap, meaning why doesn't the Torah impose more severe penalties on these examples that we've been talking about, like Baal Aramis or intermarriage or, um, or somebody who accepts Kesef Kedushin for, you know, for an underage daughter or for Ones or Mefate? Why doesn't the Torah impose stricter penalties? I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't know why the Torah doesn't impose strict penalties on that. But I do know, but I do know that throughout, and, it, and, and I'm saying that, you know, already in the Torah itself, there's a gap between what the Torah recognize, what between the penalties that the Torah itself imposes and the penalties that it expects, or, or, or the, the rhetorical force with which it condemns uh, certain, um, certain sex acts or certain or sex acts with certain types of people. And this, right, and that rhetorical force continues and even expands in the Nevi'im 
and in the Tekufa of Chazal, and I think that even Ad Hayom Hazeh, right, that we have, right, so, you know, if you, this is one good example. Another example is probably about 15 years ago, maybe a little more, it's closer to 17, 18 years ago, there was a case of a suspected molester in a, in a school in, in Lakewood, and they brought it before one of the Gedolim, and, you know, this, this particular Gadol was said, you know, like, yeah, but there was no, you know, even according to the allegations, there was no penetration. And they're like, wow, what does that have to do with anything? Who cares? Why does that matter? Right? So, like, you know, I don't want to get trust here. I don't want to talk about things, you know, too explicitly. But who cares? Right? If it was, if it was Derech HaEvarim, what, the, what Chazal called Derech HaEvarim, does that really make a difference? Right? If you're talking about a, an 11, 12, even 15, 16-year-old boy, um, you know, somebody who's not an adult, somebody who can't, who can't make their own decisions, and the fact that, you know, even though the Torah, according to the Torah, According to Chazal, the age of consent is 12 for a girl, 13 for a boy. Does that really matter to us today? Right? When we say, oh, wait, well, the girl was 14, so obviously she gave her consent. Like, no, even, the, even though technically, halachically, that may be true. Technically, halachically, I mean, listen, people were getting married at that age until not too long ago, uh, even in this century in certain parts of the world. Um, you know, I don't think that we need to adjudicate the, um, I don't think we need to adjudicate the, the marital practices of, you know, of every Jewish community in history um, in order to understand that there are different norms and there are different ways of raising children and that in certain places, in certain, you know, and in, our, in our world, um, we understand that, that, that 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old girls aren't really, um, and boys, aren't really of the age of consent, right? And that if, if somebody takes advantage of them in those years, then they're a deviant, and that their acts are, are, are the acts of deviance. I don't think that, and I don't think you have to look it up in the Mishnah Brura. I think that the fact that we have a visceral reaction to it is completely justified, even if we can't point to the chapter and verse. So I think that, um, you know, because you know, because this gap exists and has existed and has existed since the time of the Torah, I think that that it sort of it justifies our own outrage at acts that even if according to the even if according to the black letter of halacha carry a minor penalty or don't carry any penalty at all, um, still are you know we treat them as being terrible and awful and worthy of, condem of condemnation. Um, so that's what I have to say about that. I think there's probably more to explore there. I think there's probably more to think about there in terms of, you know, obviously this applies to, um, this doesn't apply to every single uh, instance of Gili Arayos and it changes, right? It depends on, you know, there are certain things that one generation might think is a deviant act that the next generation will come to think of as normal and lehefech. That one generation might think of as normal and the next generation might think of as, as deviant. And I think that that's, um, or something that's worthy of, uh, of, real, um, of real condemnation, public condemnation. 
Admittedly, this has been a little bit of a different sort of exploration, this episode of Down the Rabbi Hole. Uh, I have tried, consistent with some of the other, with the other episodes, to give a little bit of a historical context to a contemporary phenomenon, even though it's not these are these are not so these these are my thoughts these are this is something that i've noticed i've shared something that i've noticed and i've shared something that i'm working through and that i'm not done working through that there is a history and there is a development to these to the way that our community to the way that Yisrael reacts to certain types of crimes and misdeeds and transgressions and abuses um I hope that uh, I'm wishing you all a... I'm recording this on Friday, Erev Shabbos. If you listen to this before Erev Shabbos, before Shabbos Parshas Yisro, have a good and healthy and meaningful Shabbos, which when we hear the Aseris Adibros being read aloud in Shul, that we commit ourselves to upholding them, uh, to upholding the Torah and the mitzvos. Um, L'shem uh, Shomayim. Have a good Shabbos. If you're listening to this after, then I hope you have a good Avach, and we'll be back soon with the next episode.